Welcome to the Tommy Lanham Podcast, where you will discover how to embrace your weird, organize your dreams, and ignite your enthusiasm. And now, here's Tommy. Ready? Here we go. I don't know, how many of you know the days of creation? If I say to you, what did God create on the third day, who could tell me? My daughter. She's heard this before. All right, we're going to go through a quick exercise. I actually learned this my freshman year of college, okay? So we're going to go through some college material here. And it's a great way to remember the days of creation. Now, if you're able to, I would like for you to stand up, okay? We're going to go through a series of hand motions here that will help you remember the days of creation. Are you ready? All right, for the first one, I want you to go like this, kind of like you're shielding the light from your eyes. Because on the first day, God created light, all right? On the second day, I want you to move your hands out like this because God created the sky, all right? So on the first day, it was light. The second day, it was the sky. Now on the third day, bring your hands down here and just kind of wiggle your fingers because on the third day, God created vegetation. All our trees, plants, and grass, and all that cool green stuff, all right? Let's get a little more enthusiasm, okay? I'll let you sit down. Now, on the fourth day, I want you to take these same wiggly fingers and put them up here, because on the fourth day, God created the sun, moon, and stars, all that stuff you see up there in space. All right, on the fifth day, I want you to bring your hands down like this and go... Because on the fifth day, God created fish and fowl, as my professor said it. That's, you know, fish and birds, if that's easier for you. But fish and fowl. So i got to see those fish faces out there. Who can make a fish face? Some of you are doing a good job. Some of you are making a good attempt. Some of you are just saying, I'm not even trying that. Let's sit down. All right. Let's go on to the sixth day. And we will come from this, bring our hands back down here, and put up four fingers on one hand, two on the other, because God made four-legged animals, two-legged people. Don't get those confused. That's a different worldview altogether, okay? So he made land animals, and he made people. Now on the seventh day, you just bring your hands back up and put them behind your head, because what did God do on the seventh day? Now, the next time you're walking through Walmart and somebody out of the blue just comes up to you and goes, you know, I was just wondering, it was, it's been on my mind, I need to know the answer. What did God create on the fifth day? You can go, <laughs> fish and fowl, fish and fowl, all right? What I want to point out here today is that with each day of creation, if you look, especially in the, in the NIV translation, at the end of every day, the end of the first day, God said it is good. At the end of the second day, God looked at all He created and He said, it is good. At the end of the third day, He looked at everything He had created and He said, it is good. On the, after the fourth day, God looked at everything He had created and He said, it is good. On the fifth day, after He created the fish and the fowl, He looked at everything He created and He said, it is good. At the end of the sixth day, He looked at all that He had created and He said, it is very good. Now, what's so significant about the sixth day? He made man. He made us. He made his most valuable 
creation. And that's not to put down the rest of creation. Listen, all of God's creation is extremely valuable. And we should honor that. Man, it's beautiful. All of God's creation is valuable. But we are God's most valuable creation. For we were created in His image. And therefore, everything is good. But when he looked at what he created on the sixth day, he said it is very good. Because we are God's most valuable creation. There's a passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, and he says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What this tells me, what this verse tells me, that God knew what He wanted you to do before you were ever born. Before you were ever born, God already had it planned out what your purpose in life was to be. Why? Because He created us specifically for that purpose. It wasn't like He created us and we were born and then He goes, all right, what am I going to do with this guy? (laughs) No, He created us. He had a purpose in mind before He even created us. For we are God's Workmanship. Now that word workmanship is translated a lot of different ways and a lot of different translations. Some translations say handiwork. We are God's handiwork. I just, it just, that has a personal feel to it. That we were personally made. We were not mass manufactured. That we were personally made by God. Some translations say workmanship, that he worked on us and he worked in us to get us the way he wanted us to be in order to do what he wanted us to do. You know, every product that it is created is created for a purpose. Again, people don't create products and then sit back and say, I wonder how we can use this. When I got back to the hotel last night, I was turning, I was, I'm a channel surfer. I don't know what you are. I don't really care what's on TV. I just want to know what else is on TV. And, and I came across CNN and they were doing this, you know, how they do the, they'll go through the decades, what was happening in that decade. They were looking at the 2000s and they were looking specifically at technology. And they began to look at, you know, how technology changed throughout the 2000s. They, they looked, you know, at MySpace, if you remember MySpace when it came out, and then Facebook just kind of blew MySpace out of the water and all that. And then it got to the iPhone, and they had the, uh, had the presentation that Steve Jobs did when he got up, and he said, we're introducing three new products. <laughs> An iPod, a phone, and a new way to surf the Internet. Three new products. And then the whole graphics in the back of the screen meshed all three of those in together. And then he goes, actually, we're just creating one new product with all three functions. It changed our world, doesn't it? Didn't it? I mean, just about every one of us now, even me, I'm kind of slow to hop on that technology train. A few years ago, got my, I don't guess it's technically an iPhone, but it's an iPhone-influenced phone. But I can do 
get on my email and get on Facebook and, and all this stuff. I can listen to music and, um, and I can still make phone calls on a phone. You know, all that stuff that we do on a phone. Did Steve Jobs just create that and, and Apple create that and go, I wonder how we can use this? No. They created it for a specific purpose and then they introduced that to the world. You know what? God did the same thing with us, only better. He created us for a specific purpose, and then he introduced us to the world to be able to fulfill that purpose. Another translation translates that word as a craftsmanship. We are God's craftsmanship. I kind of get the idea of a craftsman putting together a, a, a project. My dad used to make birdhouses. And he didn't just make birdhouses. I mean, he would labor over every single detail of every individual birdhouse. It wore me out as a kid growing up. Because I'd be down in the basement helping him. And it looked great to me, but he kept looking for every little blemish, every place that he might be able to improve. Maybe he need to sand this down here. Or maybe he need to straighten something up here. He just looked it over. My mom would be upstairs going, hey boys, the food's getting cold. And I'm like, I know, my stomach's growling. I'm ready to go. But I wasn't about to walk away from dad and go upstairs. I stood right there by him until he finished looking this birdhouse over. Now I kind of get a feeling that God does us that way. Again, he, does, he doesn't just put us together and put us out there. But he pays attention to every little detail of who we are and how he's making us in order to serve him. <laughs> Another translation of this word, workmanship, is that we are a work of art or a masterpiece. You ever thought of yourself as a masterpiece? Because when I think of a masterpiece, I think of these great, big, expensive paintings, right? These paintings that sell for like thousands and sometimes even millions of dollars. And you know what? Each one is unique. There were not thousands or millions of these made. If they were, the value would have dropped. But there's typically one made, this one masterpiece painting. And people pay a big price for that masterpiece painting. And the painter who painted that paid attention to every little detail. They didn't just throw paint on a canvas and wait to see what happens. They had intentions of creating a masterpiece when they created it. And I feel like God does the same thing with us. We are a masterpiece of God. Now, before you get the wrong idea of where I'm going with this, please understand me. This isn't so that we could boast. It isn't so that we could brag. It's not so that we could puff our chest out and go, yeah, I'm a masterpiece of God. Because without the Creator, what are we? We're just a cheap piece of canvas. It's what we are. I mean, you can, you can get a canvas down at Walmart. <laughs> they are not that valuable. But it's when the painter, the creator, creates the masterpiece that it becomes valuable. We're not a masterpiece on our own merit. We're a masterpiece because of the creator that created us. <laughs> That's what makes us a masterpiece. 
The word that is actually used there, the Greek word, is the word poema. It's where we get our word poem. You know, when I think of a poem, I think of something that, that somebody has, has intentionally put the right words in just the right place to create the right emotion as somebody reads through that poetry. And I know some of you are not into poetry, and as I say this, you're going, who could get emotional about a poem? <laughs> but others of you are really into that. And probably more of you are into poetry that is put to music. We call them songs. That's really poetry, just put to music. <laughs> But it's the touch of an artist that creates a master poem or a master song. And that's what God has done in us for a specific purpose. The day that my daughter was born, my wife and I, we were at the hospital there in Lexington, Kentucky. My parents had come up and they were sitting there with us and they had, they had just taken my wife back to get her ready and they raised five kids, four girls and then me, okay, I'm the baby and I'm the boy, we're not going to get into that right now but uh, that was just, that was my birth order right there and so I, I looked at them and I said, you guys obviously knew what you were doing with, with parenting or eventually knew as you went through raising five kids what parenting advice do you have for somebody that's just starting out? And my dad looked at me and he said, raise them up according to their personality. And then he looked at me and he said, that's where I went wrong with you. <laughs> I didn't know exactly how to take that. But man, that stuck with me. And he went on to say, he goes, I raised you as a typical little boy. Little did I know that I was raising a son with the heart of a poet. And man, that had an effect on me. And I've tried to be intentional of understanding the personality style of each one of my kids and, and helping to raise them in that direction. Because here's the deal. Each one of us have different personalities. Each one of us are different. Each one of us can look at the same situation and see it in different ways. Now, I'm not talking about wrong information. I'm not talking about making up facts. I'm just talking about seeing the same thing from different points of view. Because we are all Different, And you know those personalities that we have? God created us with that personality. He's made each one of us different. He has made each one of us weird. Right? I mean, have you ever noticed that there's any weird people around? Yeah. Have you ever realized that those same people feel the same way about you? Okay? We are all weird. We all have our own unique oddities, but that's okay. Because that's how God created us. Our personalities in and of themselves are not good or bad. We can make them good or bad by the way we act according to those personalities. But in and of themselves, God has created us in a specific way to serve Him in a specific way 
purpose. In order for us to better understand that God-inspired fire ignited deep within our soul that drives us to never settle, to live with passion, and to turn the world upside down, we've got to come to an understanding of how God has created us in our personality. And there's a lot of other areas that we could look at this. We could look at spiritual gifts. We could, we could look at our specific passions and our experiences and our abilities. And I would encourage you to do that just in the time that we have here tonight. We're not going to be able to get into all of that. But one of my specialties is, is personality style strategies. How do people best serve God with their own specific personality? In Galatians chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and I love the message translation of this passage. It says, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given, and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative, creative best you can with your own life. <laughs> I love that passage of Scripture because, first of all, it's telling us to make a careful exploration of who we are. How has God created us? And it's a, it's a, it's a journey of understanding and better understanding how God has created us. And then the more understanding we get of that, the more we need to sink ourselves into that. That's not something for us to dabble in. That's something for us to plunge ourselves into. <laughs> because God's created us for that. Again, it's not for our own glory. Specifically, it says, don't be impressed with yourself. Don't. Because again, it's because of God that you are who you are. We didn't achieve that on our own merit. We choose what we do with that. But the way that God created us has nothing to do with our own merit, our own ability. It's what God has done in us, how He has designed us. So don't be impressed with yourself. Because different personalities serve different purposes, and some of them get more limelight than others. And that's okay. It doesn't mean they're any more valuable. It just means that people see them more. But the people that don't get the limelight, we need them too. I would assume there's probably people in this church that are good at doing maintenance on this building. If something goes wrong, they're there and they're able to fix it. They're able to take care of it. They may not get up and preach. They may not be teaching a Sunday school class. They may not be up in front of the crowd. There may be some people who don't even know their names. But they're extremely valuable extremely valuable for the purpose that they serve. We are all valuable because God has created us that way. So don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. One of two things happen when we compare ourselves with others. We either become prideful or we become depressed. If we compare ourselves with others and we think, wow, I'm, I'm doing better than they are. I'm doing a good job, man. Look at them. I'm, I'm, I'm good at this. We begin to get prideful, don't we? But if we compare ourselves to somebody else and we go, man, I wish I could do that. I'm not as good as them. I'm never going to be able to do that. I might as well just stop. I might as well just give up. We become depressed. 
And in this passage, it's saying, do not compare yourself with others. It's not a competition. We're all on the same team, working for the same God. We're not competing for God's attention. Guess what? We all have God's full attention already. He's crazy about you. So let's not compare ourselves to one another. But each one of us must take personal responsibility for doing the creative best we can with our own life. <laughs> because we are all different. We can learn from other people, but we've got to apply that to our own personal life. Listen, what makes you tick and what ugh, ticks you off is different than what makes the person beside you tick and what ticks them off. Because we're all created different and we're all weird in our own way. Now, for centuries, there has been a common agreement that there are four dominant personality styles. Now the way those are materialized or the way those are explained or communicated or whatever may have some flexibility in there as you look at them. Some of you may be familiar with the, the disc profiles that kind of splits up the personality styles into in four different ones. I think one of our, our, um, our Christian counselors, maybe Gary Smalley that does it uh, according to animals. He uses animal labels. Some people do colors. I don't do that. I, I, I bring my wording straight out of Scripture in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And his response is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. <laughs> heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so real quick, let's go through those four different personality styles and see how God uses each one to best serve his purposes. The first one I want to talk about is the heart. Hearts make up about 40 to 50 percent of the world's population. They are the security seeking personality. They want to know that there's enough money in the bank, that their jobs are secure, that their kids are safe, that their marriage is secure. They like having that security. Each personality style has a time focus, and the time focus of the hearts is in the past. I was raised by two hearts. My parents loved talking about the good old days. And I loved hearing them talk about the good old days because they talked about it with such excitement and enthusiasm as they reflected on those years of growing up and sharing that with other people. Hearts kind of give stability to our society. Whatever society you may be looking at, whatever culture you may be looking at, hearts are the predominant stability of that specific culture. And so hearts, we thank you for that. Hearts, when they're looking for a spouse, they're looking for a helpmate. They want somebody that's going to work beside them, that's going to work with them. I am married to a heart. Not only was I raised by a heart, by heart, I am married to a heart. And you know the most romantic thing I can do for my wife? Get on my knees beside her in the garden and get my hands dirty. 
As she loves that more than flowers or poetry. I'd much rather write poetry, um, but it just doesn't do much for my wife. Uh, get in, help her do dishes or to help her clean a house, stuff like that. That is my wife's idea of romance. Why? Because she is a heart, and what she's looking for in a spouse is a helpmate. Now, as a parent, hearts are socializers. They want their kids to be involved, whether it's Little League or, or church or Cub Scouts or Girl Scouts or, or whatever it is. They want them to be involved in some kind of, of community where they can have that connection. As children, hearts are what we call authority pleasers, or I guess maybe what we really call them are the good kids. <laughs> They're the ones that, that are almost born with a desire to please their parents. And when they go to school, they have a desire to please their teachers. And when they get a job, they have a desire to please their supervisors. They just have this innate desire to please whatever authority figure is in their life at that time. They are loyal. They are dependable. They're always there. If they say they're going to do something, they will move heaven and earth to make sure it gets done. Now, looking at this from a ministry point of view, when you are plugging hearts into a ministry within the church, the two things that you want to see happen with them, if you want them to serve long term, is that they experience connection with other people and they have accomplishment, measurable accomplishment, where they can look and say, okay, I did this. Hearts love checklist, to-do list. All right, I got this done, I got this done, I got this done, I get this, and I get to check that off. And my wife is most enthusiastic at the end of the day when she can look at her to-do list and every one of them have checks. Okay, she accomplished everything on that list. That makes her day. As leaders, hearts are stabilizers. They bring stability to an organization. I work with a, and I'm on a board of regents of a, of a small Bible college. And a few years ago, we kind of went through some, some chaotic times and we're struggling financially. And we were without a president, and we were looking for somebody to bring stability. We didn't need a visionary at this point. We needed somebody who was going to stabilize the situation. And I believe we found that, and over the past couple of years, we have experienced much more stability in that situation. Why? Because we have a heart as a leader, as a president in that situation. Now, we have four dominant personality styles. How many Gospels do we have? Four. We have four. Isn't that, isn't that just amazing? Isn't that just something? Some people have done studies on this and they feel that certain Gospels have a, a stronger appeal to specific personality styles. And the Gospel that appeals the most to most hearts is the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew digs into the past more so than the other three Gospels. There are more Old Testament quotations in Matthew than the other three Gospels. Matthew does more to prove the 
the prophecies of Jesus being the Messiah than the other three Gospels do. And of course, with a heart having a time focus of the past, that really appeals to them. Another biblical example of a heart in the Bible is Martha. You remember the situation with Mary and Martha when Jesus was, was visiting. Mary was just spending all her time right there at the feet of Jesus. And what was Martha doing? She was making sure all the food was ready, everything was cleaned up, the house was nice, everything was prepared and ready. That's a heart. That's a heart. They like to make sure everything is ready to go. Everything is in its place. Now... As I have described the hearts, how many of you believe that you may be a heart? Alright. How many of you think you're married to a heart? How many of you think you have kids who are hearts? Alright. Alright. The second one, second personality style is what I call the bodies. Now it uses strength in the Bible, but that's Kind of an odd word to use for personality style. So we use the word body. It's that, that physical side. <laughs> now the bodies, they are the thrill-seeking personalities. They make up about 30 to 40% of the world's population. And they focus on the now. They're not real concerned about the future. They're not real concerned about the past. They are living for the moment. They like it now, they, they want to they wanna have fun, they like to have adventure, they like to do things that they've never done before, they like to go on vacations, places where they've never gone before. Hearts love going on vacation to the same place they've gone for the past 20 years. <laughs> but not a body. Now bodies, what are they looking in a spouse, looking for in a spouse? They're looking for playmates. People they're going to have fun with. People who want to go out and do things and seek adventure. As parents, they're liberators. They want their children to be free. Let's go out and do things. Let's take chances. Let's face danger. As children, bodies are excitables. It doesn't take a whole lot to get a body all revved up, man. And you know these people, right? You know these kids. You've had them in vacation Bible school. And when you find out they're in your class, you're going, oh, I'm going to need an Excedrin. <laughs> because they love to have fun and the least little thing, man, and they are excited. Now, in order to plug a body into ministry where you want them to be long term, it's got to be fun and it's got to be active. You're not going to get a body to just sit around a lot. Bodies are not interested in long board meetings. <laughs> They're just not. They want to get up and they want to do something. They want to be active. As leaders, bodies are troubleshooters. If you are dealing with a situation and you need a quick fix to something, a body could come in, they could creatively look for a solution, and then move on. They don't want to sit around talking about all the different variations. and all the, they, just, they see a problem, they fix it, they move on. And if you're needing that type of leader in that situation, a body is what you need. Now, what gospel best appeals to a body? It's the gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest gospel we have. It hits the highlights and it moves on. Okay? 
I mean, you still get the information. If you read the Gospel of Mark, you get an understanding of who Jesus is. But Mark doesn't go a whole lot into the Old Testament reasons that Jesus is the Messiah. You don't get a whole lot of extra information with Mark. But you, you get the information you need and you move on. And bodies love that. Give it to me and let me go. Now, another biblical example of a body, and some of you may be able to guess this already, Peter. Peter's like the perfect example of the body. I mean, he was an in-the-moment kind of guy. When Jesus was walking on the water, who was the one who stood up and said, Call me to come out there, I'm ready! <laughs> you know, once he got out there, he kind of realized the situation was a little different than what he expected it to be. <laughs> but man, he jumped up and he was ready to go. What was it he told Jesus when Jesus said that you will deny me? I'll never deny you, not me! Even if I have to die, I won't deny you. What did he end up doing? Denying him? I don't know who this guy is. But, but Peter was also effective, extremely effective, in the birth of the church when he stood up and he preached that first gospel message. And it impacted the people in a way that 3,000 people came to Jesus. Bodies have presence about them. There's just something about bodies that when they come into a room, they cannot go unnoticed. Our attention is drawn to them. Here's an interesting thing, kind of a side note on the bodies, looking at the political situation. <laughs> Every time a body has run against a different personality in the general election, in the final election, when it's down to two, Every time a body has run against another personality, the body has won every time. Every time. Donald Trump is a body. He ran against the mine. And we'll talk about mines here in a minute. Obama was a body. George W. was a body. Reagan was a body. John F. Kennedy was a body. There was just something about those guys, whether you liked them or whether you hated them. You couldn't ignore them. They drew your attention. Because that's what bodies do. Alright, let's go to the third one. The third one is a soul. The souls make up about 10 to 20% of the world's population. They are the identity seeking personalities. They're the ones always trying to figure out who they are. And if they ever truly discover who they are, they cease being who they are because who they really are is trying to find out who they are. They're always in this kind of self-discovery mode trying to find out what is out there and what more is there that's, that's out. They are the dreamers of the world. Their time focus is the future. They're always focused on how good things can be. If we could just do this and we could just do that, oh, the picture is so much more beautiful in the future than what it is now. But I'm excited because we can create that. Those are the souls. And in a spouse, they are looking for a soulmate, somebody that they can connect with in a spiritual sense, something deeper than just the physical, just what they can hear, see, and taste. As a parent, they are harmonizers. They want their kids to get along with each other. They want their kids to get along with others. As a child, they are the passionates. 
They will find something that they are passionate about and nothing can tear them from it. They just get caught up in that. Now, if you want a soul to get plugged into ministry in a way that they will serve long term, there's got to be harmony and there's got to be purpose in what they are doing. They want a deeper meaning for any significant activity they take place in. They want to know that it's something bigger than just what is before their eyes. Now, as leaders, they are inspirational leaders. They inspire crowds to stand up and march. They're not real great with the details of how to get from one place to another, but they are great in motivating and inspiring people to get from one place to another. The gospel that best appeals to a soul is the gospel of John. The spirituality that comes from the description of Jesus in the gospel of John really appeals to a soul. You will be hard-pressed to find a soul that is an atheist because they believe, whether they're Christian or not, almost all of them believe that there is something out there somewhere beyond what we can just see. Another biblical example of a soul is Barnabas. Barnabas is the guy that when everybody else wanted to reject Paul because they weren't sure that he was genuine, they weren't sure, they were still afraid because he had persecuted the church, and Barnabas comes along and he goes, guys, I've heard him preach. I believe he's genuine, and I believe if we give him a chance, he could be a big part of what we're doing here. That's not a direct quote, but that's the principle of what happened. If it had not been for Barnabas, there's a possibility of about 13 books in the Bible that we, in the New Testament that we may not have, that Paul wrote. If it had not been for Barnabas, the soul that brought harmony between the church and Paul. We're going to go on to the final one, the fourth one, and these are the minds. The minds make up about 5 to 10% of the world's population. They are the knowledge-seeking personalities. They are the ones always trying to figure out how things work. They are the ones that when they were little kids and they got something for Christmas, rather than play with the toy, they take it apart to see how it works. Have you seen those kids? I had a friend when we lived in Nicholasville. He lived in Lex- Nich- Nicholasville, Kentucky. He lived in Lexington, and he was a mine. And he was into video games, and oftentimes minds are in the computers and technology and stuff like that. But he was into video games, and he would get these video games, and he would have them for a couple of months, and I would come over, he would invite me over to come over and play, and I would play. It would be the first time I ever played the game, and I would beat him. And I couldn't understand that for a while until I realized he doesn't play the games. He's figuring out the codes how to change the graphics, how to do all this extra stuff within the game. He didn't care a whole lot about playing the game. He didn't care about whether he won or lost. He just wanted to figure out the stuff in the background, the technology of it all, because they are knowledge seekers. Now, heart's time focus is in the past. A body's time focus is in the present. A soul's time focus is in the future. A mind's time focus, and this is weird, they see time in intervals. 
They don't see time the same way the rest of us do. They are more likely to lose track of time because they seldom measure time by the clock in the same way that the rest of us do. They measure time by projects. What they are involved in at the moment. They don't work from nine to five. They work from beginning to end. <laughs> they say that Thomas Edison, who was an extreme mind personality, personality, they said sometimes Thomas Edison would work on something for two days straight without sleeping. And then he would sleep for 24 hours. But that's just the way his mind worked. <laughs> they said that Thomas Edison would go through the place where he worked because he was so aggravated with everybody else, always concerned about what time it was, that one time he went through the place and he changed all the clocks to all of them having different times and none of them were correct. Now that would drive a heart nuts because they love the clock. But minds, they don't pay much attention to it. What they look for in a spouse is a mind mate. They want somebody that they can connect with on an intellectual level. They want somebody that they can have intelligent conversation with. As a parent, they're what we call individuators. They want their children to be individuals. They don't want them to fit into any type of category or anything. Matter of fact, if you're here tonight and you're a mind you're probably frustrated with this whole thing I've been talking about tonight because you're like, oh, those are just labels. I don't care about labels. <laughs> and they don't. They want to be individuals. And they want their kids to be individuals. As children, they are oftentimes referred to as the calm ones because they kind of live in this inner world that they have. And as long as they are caught up in whatever it is that they are into at that time, trying to figure out how it works and how everything pieces together, you don't hear a lot from them. They are focused in their calmness as they move forward. Now, if you want, a if you want to plug a mind into ministry long term, it needs to be a ministry where they can use their individuality where they can be an individual and it's got to be efficient. Minds love to be efficient. Let's, let's get into this and figure out the best way to do it and then do it that way. They need efficient use of their time. The gospel that appeals to most of them is the gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor. Luke comes more from an intellectual side, an intellectual slant than the other three gospels do. And they appeal to minds. One of the big minds in the Bible, we already talked about him earlier, is Paul. Paul was a mind. We see in several places in the New Testament where it says that Paul sat and reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This was Paul's favorite form of evangelism. Because he looked at things from an intellectual point of view. Listen. None of these personality styles are good or bad. God has created you for a specific purpose. And part of that purpose is your personality. How He's created you in your personality to best serve Him. He made you a heart, if you're a heart, to serve Him according to your personality. Same way with a body. Same way with a soul. Same way with a mind. Just for... Fun, 
Which one of those personality styles do you think I am? What? Ooh, you got it. It's funny because most people don't get it the first time. I am a soul. I am a soul. Now, everybody has a primary and everybody has a secondary. And my secondary is body. Okay? And usually when I'm speaking up in front of a crowd, that's what people typically guess is a body because this is my most comfortable place to be <laughs> up in front of a crowd and I really come alive in this type of situation and that secondary personality really shows up in this type of situation. But in reality, I am a soul. We're kind of weird. We're kind of out there. <laughs> Sometimes we are so focused in the future, we are no good in the present. But that's kind of the struggle that we have to deal with there. But God creates souls. He created me a soul. And if you're a soul, he created you a soul in order to serve him within that personality. And he did the same thing with a mind. Now, several years ago, many, many years ago, there were four people that were arrested and sentenced to death. Death by guillotine. And they lined all four of them up. And they put their heads in the guillotine. And they dropped that blade. And that blade fell. And just within inches of their necks, the blade stopped. Well, they took it as a sign that all four of these people were innocent. And so they let them go. And it just so happens that within these four... There was a heart, and there was a body, and there was a soul, and there was a mind. And when they were set free, the heart goes, I can be with my family another day. I get to hug my spouse. I get to love my children. I get to spend more time with my family, and I will not let that time go to waste. The body stands up and he goes, Party! Everybody over to my house. We're having a celebration. I thought I was going to be dead today. I'm not. Hey, let's live it up, folks. Come on over. The soul stands up and he goes, We have been spared for a deeper reason. There is a purpose. There is a meaning. There is something that we are meant to do. And I intend to find out what that is. The whole time the mind is standing back looking at the guillotine and finally he speaks up and he says, Hey guys, come back. I think I can fix this thing. <laughs> There's your four personality styles. Listen guys, don't forget Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, handiwork, work of art, Craftsmanship, pull, masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do.